I'm Doug Storm, and this is Interchange on WFHB. Tonight's show is Lynchings on Loop, How Terror Goes Viral. You're listening to Alabama, a piece recorded by John Coltrane in response to the 1963 bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church by the Ku Klux Klan. Tonight, we feature a conversation with Courtney Baker, author of Humane Insight, looking at images of African Americans suffering and death about the history of images of black pain, the malleable and incomplete nature of the image, and how to proceed in our current media-saturated environment. She joined me via Skype. Our first segment opens on the current moment. We are often confronted with televised images of black lives destroyed by the overreaches of the criminal justice system, most often taking the form of violent police force and those images are replayed and retweeted on a seemingly endless loop of social media. The proliferation of these images prompts questions about moral responsibility. Should we look? Should we share them? Or is that a kind of voyeurism? Or worse, an approbation? If we do look, how should we respond? Is there an ethics of response? Still worse, there are those who condone and collaborate with this violence and with the sharing of these images proclaim their approval. Since publishing her book, Courtney Baker has written two articles she considers appendices, titled Sandra Bland's Face, and most recently, The East Nuff of Alton Sterling and Philando Castile. We start there, discussing why those images, any images for that matter, cannot inherently speak any particular narrative, and how the mass media environment, as she recently writes, carelessly circulate these images for titillation or profit or some bad faith interpretation of the expose. Courtney Baker on the double-edged power of images of black suffering and death, tonight on Interchange. some significant ways, those two pieces, the Sandra Bland's face and uh, the more recent piece, also published in Avidly, were, for me, they functioned as a kind of appendix to the book project, which ends um, at, with, with Hurricane Katrina in 2005. And I was really in that book thinking about what you might call the long 20th century and particularly how pro-black movements were circulating these images of black suffering and death. And with, you know, after Katrina, and I really think about all of the images that circulated um, of, in particular, black suffering in the Superdome and in the streets of New Orleans and in the Gulf Gulf area in general, um, they really didn't, there wasn't a a clear one-to-one correspondence and they really with um, relief efforts, specifically on a, on a broad scale or on a federal scale. Um, so it, it, it struck me that something had changed. So thinking about, you know, the afterlife of, of Katrina, what does it mean to have had a black movement that 
originated, or, or at least for a significant chunk of time, really was able to mobilize the images and looking at the civil rights movement and the way that the, the King organizations and SNCC really utilized and relied upon mass media. And then comparing that to today's moment when we have a proliferation of these images that are circulated on, on news programs, network and cable, um, and on the internet, the way that they affect the political tenor and the, the, the popular discourse about black life is really dramatically changed. So in those two pieces that I wrote for, for Avidly, um, I really wanted to think about, you know, first of all, that there's not some, some truth that we're seeing in the images in the sense that how we respond to it is what we need to attend to, how we use these images, um, to what purposes they're put. As I, as I mentioned at the end of the Eastnuff article about uh, Castile and Sterling, that if those images, if those videos of their deaths are being set alongside you know, conversations about black-on-black crime and Blue Lives Matter, then, 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 then that's, uh, that's significant, right? That, that that's, they're participating and being mobilized to operate in a particular way um, that is not necessarily in line with, you know, revealing the humanity of, of black people. Uh, well, as you were talking there, it made me it made me think in terms of how we see those images, even when we see them as video, we're seeing things still in snippets, and we're not seeing that that opportunity to sort of capture the whole moment, if that's at all even would even be possible, right? Which is one of those those questions about constant surveillance. Well, if only we had CCTV everywhere, you would see everything all the time. I don't know if this is good or bad in this situation, but it's the fact that we see these little bits too that also create the opportunity to to make a narrative up. Mm-hmm. And as you were speaking, uh, a line from Hamilton came to my mind, who tells your story, right? The images don't tell the story. There needs to be an agent, a human being, telling the story to contextualize. And something that a uh, historian at Yale, David Blight, said after a screening of the film Selma, that history is really up for grabs um, in, in a certain sense. And so it's the work of historians, but specifically, but all of us, to put certain events, and that also includes the illustrations of those events, images, into to make sense of them. Sense is, and I tell my students this all the time, sense is not there waiting to be discovered like, um, like an Everest. It needs to be made. It is produced. And one of the tools that we have is, is images, documentation, and documentary. But again, and we can think about documentary film as a genre, um, I think we're becoming increasingly aware that we can be very selective about what's included and what's what's not included. And that sometimes the, the issue is that the story can precede, um, the story that, that one is desiring to tell can precede um, what is actually discovered by looking to the images, looking to the document, and also, just to speak of, of narrative, I was thinking that recently, you know, just in the past couple of days, maybe even listening to 
some of the, the speakers at the RNC convention that in the U.S. context specifically, though I think that this is, this is not just a national issue, that there's a, a certain reticence and to, um, to get deeply invested into systemic analysis and into narratives, right? Um, so we're only willing to go back to a certain, uh, to a certain inciting uh, moment and not further back into the moment that incited that moment of uh, contention. It was an inter- interesting comment to think about narrative and, and images as not having uh, meaning imminent in them, right, uh, in terms of language, too. And, and and this is something I think Morris Peckham said. He's a romantic scholar, actually, um, but basically said, you know, all these things are negotiations, right? All these things are uh, uh, power negotiations. Explanations are power negotiations. And the work you've done has sought to, I think, to illuminate in some sense or to try to discover those those relations of how we make use of those images to move the power needle in some sense. Right. Um, and this is something that we saw and I examined in my book. You know, the anti-lynching mo- movement in particular, we think about those images of lynching now for the most part, I think, as being absolutely in service to the cessation of, of lynching, right? Um, and as an indictment of those, that, that mob that would string up, uh, black people, whether it was the, the person that they thought actually committed the, a crime or not. Um, but those images that Ida B. Wells was using, she actually was repurposing them or transcoding them. At first they were circulated and this is what the, the show that traveled um, without sanctuary really revealed as, as the collector called a, a number of these postcards and privately held images. But they were circulated amongst, um, amongst white family members or amongst white community members in private through the post to not to indict the mob, but to secure a sense of of white supremacy to consult and and also to consolidate a sense of the righteous criminalization and punishment of and and basically terrorism of a black population. This is Doug Stormont Interchange. With me on today's program is Courtney Baker, author of the article The East Snuff of Alton Sterling in Philando Castile and of the book Humane Insight, looking at images of African-American suffering and death. Well, this is your position with the, the current, um, uh, what you call e-snuff as well, that these these um, particular images, these videos, um, they their in, intention may be, or at least maybe the structural, we talk about structural racism, uh, maybe operational racism of of these these videos going viral is to do this same thing to sort of bolster the the white supremacist position to to terrorize uh the black american as well um you know one of the things that that struck me about this is that distinction between uh Philando Castile's uh girlfriend I'm sorry I forget forgotten her name and I should know her name but um for you know for her use of the um a recording opportunity isn't to do anything other than to 
to uh, document her own like security in some sense to document her own ability to remain a viable uh living being and and to be protected even perhaps in in the event of her own death i think that's right and i believe her name is or her first name or her nickname is diamond i believe um yeah it it, it seems and it was live streamed through facebook my interpretation of that and my understanding of it was that she really was using it as kind of her own personal security camera, right? Um, and which which invites us also to think about, you know, who is carrying, which bodies are carrying the cameras and even how they can, and how that, how it's not secure. So, right. Um, this woman is producing her own kind of, her, her own document, her own maybe even um, testament to her her potential death and certainly her partner's death. Um, but I've also seen stills from the image that have been utilized and examined, and this is something that I went into why I was interested in, in the, the analysis of Sandra Bland's mugshot in particular because people are seeing things that that might not be there, shadows, or um, that that certain certain outlets have said, well, there wasn't, in fact, a gun here, um, or that Sandra Bland appeared dead in the mugshot. And someone knows, right, someone who was there, but for the rest of us, which is a lot of us, that's, that's something that we'll never know. So when I say that the truth isn't, in the image, and when you say that there, the image doesn't tell the story, it, it, it both, the image both suffers from having so much information in it, but also not the information that we can properly contextualize or even, even necessarily properly see and interpret. Yeah, the uh, even as you imagine the context being available, it's never fully contextualized, and and this is the problem with I guess life generally, generally, which, right. and it's why we uh, we jump into story making all the time. It's all we do is tell stories. Uh, we are we are constantly gossiping. This is difficult for for an attempt to create um, uh, these these opportunities to to tell this the story that is just, you know, to tell mm-hmm. the story that um, needs to be told and not fall into those um, two versions that are diametrically opposed to each other, which is what we, what we do now or what the, what the media does. I say we all the time and I, I forget that we need to, <laughs> I forget that I, let me just say I here, I forget that I need to, to constantly assess where the story is coming from. Mm-hmm. And I'm also thinking about one cinematic document that is really prescient. I, I keep thinking about Antonioni's uh, film Blow Up from the 1960s. And it's about a photographer who photographs, is ostensibly photographing a woman in the foreground, but he sees what he thinks might be a dead body in the background. And so the film is about him constantly you know, blowing up the image. But as he blows it up, it becomes increasingly grainy. And I think that's a really apt metaphor um, in a lot of ways for 
what we're for our fetish about of of the image in this particular moment that we're trying to see something so clearly that we're focusing in when in fact I think to see the picture and if the if the picture we're talking about is race relations in America or something like that that focusing in isn't helping us as much as you know zooming out seeing the larger story right seeing the history of this country's relationship to whiteness and to blackness the ways that those have been um, legally determined and run run through everything um, everything about our economy everything about um, our education system everything the way that our country is organized yeah it's been a constant education to try to see everything through that that space and part of the question that we have to come to all the time is how we understand each other you know how we make use of each other how we normalize these abuses and and say that they uh, certain people do or don't mm-hmm. feel pain a certain way. Certain people do or don't deserve to be treated a certain way or that uh, that we even see them as, as I think you point out, you know, how we see them as human. What's fascinating to me is that the race story in America is in some ways a very simple story if you're willing to acknowledge that race is a fundamental part of it. But much like the peculiar institution of slavery, produce these very elaborate um, mental gyrations that have obfuscated what was really going on, that, that uh, the slave trade was actually a Christian salvation mission, that um, black people weren't actually fit to be emancipated, so this was actually a kind service. In our current moment, I think we're seeing a similar, a similar kind of mental, uh, mental acrobatics, just so that we can preserve are admirable in some sense fantasies about meritocracy, about a colorblind society in which everyone succeeds. But in doing so, we're really papering over what is really, really going on. time for a break. Baker's mention of Ida B. Wells' repurposing of white supremacist lynching photographs into an anti-lynching exhibition brings us our next song, Billie Holiday's Strange Fruit. More with Courtney Baker and lynchings on loop when Interchange returns on WFHB. Trees. 
Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our guest tonight is Courtney Baker, author of Humane Insight, looking at images of African-American suffering and death. For our second segment, Then and Now, Baker takes us back to the pre-photography era, when the first-hand witnessing of the tortured bodies of Madame LaLaurie's slaves sparked a riot among the white population of antebellum New Orleans. Along the way, we discuss the open casket funeral of Emmett Till and how the images of his mutilated body sparked the early civil rights movement, but were also used to help acquit Till's murderers. Finally, we turn back to the present and how the proliferation of horrific images and the way they're delivered has inured the public to such responses of mourning and outrage. Let's uh, let's do a little bit of work with uh, with your book as well, and try to walk through uh, how we may have come to uh, learn to look at images, and uh, maybe even that that learning has not served us so well as the images come fast and furious to us now that we've sort of learned the wrong way of looking, perhaps uh, in, in the past, and that we need to, to try to understand these images in a, in a different way. So you, you, do you start out with Ida Wells? I don't, I don't remember if you do or not. I actually start out in 19, sorry, 1834 in before photography. So photography is basically invented in 1835, but in 1834 in New Orleans, um, a woman named Delphine who was a white Creole woman, was, it was discovered after a fire at her house. Um, people, her free neighbors, tried to rescue the furniture, and they tried to press into this locked attic, and she said, please don't go in there, there's nothing of value, and they, they, they went in there anyway, and they Reportedly found at least three of her and three of her and her slaves um, chained to the wall. And the story was that she had been experimenting upon them, conducting brutal um, and fairly disgusting, like reattaching wounds and stuff. And this is filtered down through popular culture. But at the time, it was enough to get her driven out of the city. So she had to flee anonymously, presumably to France, and. It also incited a riot on the part of her white peers um, who were so horrified by this abuse of black humanity. At the same time, the, those victims that were found in the attic were taken to the prison, the local prison, where they eventually died. But in the meantime, a number of the citizenry of New Orleans filed past to see what had been done. So there was a sense of witnessing and the witnessing of the violence enacted upon slave, black slave bodies inspired people to riot. Um, but what you also see in the newspapers, and this story was syndicated, uh, so it appeared both in the local press but also in the abolitionist press in the north, in the north um, was that they eventually, eventually the, the, the status quo, the government said, you really need to not write about this because really think about what you're writing for. What is the end game of, of, of writing on behalf of black bodies? Right. And so, so eventually um, 
the episode quieted down. She she never returned. She was still um, she was still ostracized. And but but that story was really interesting to me. And I placed it at the beginning of the of the book because of this book that is otherwise about photography and, and spectacle. Um, even though this moment is before the invention of photography, because there was such a desire to see. And this desire to see black bodies in pain instigated um, instigated a, a desire to action and also um, bespoke uh, an investment in black humanity, that there was a certain line that even though you were a slave owner, that you weren't supposed to cross, that you weren't supposed to violate black bodies for your own amusement. And so, so that idea of black humanity and how do you represent black humanity visually was really interesting to me because I, 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 I saw it over and over again, um, particularly with Emmett Till, with the body of Emmett Till that his mother um, exposed to an open casket funeral, didn't have him retouched, and also had his image reproduced in 1955 circulated um, mainly in the black press, right? Um, but the story also gets picked up by the international press. And it's, it's identified by some as the first action in the civil rights movement. Even that it, those images of Emmett Till's body in the courtroom were still up for grabs. Um, they were still up for debate because they were put in service to um, not only to a sense of mourning on the part of a black populace or a, or a populace, a population was sympathetic to black suffering, but they were also put in service to support um, the local Mississippi white uh, police status quo who wanted to say this body is disfigured. It can't be identified as anyone. So, so, so that's a completely, so, so it worked to, to completely opposing um, ends. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. With me on today's program is Courtney Baker, author of the article The E-Snuff of Alton Sterling in Philando Castile and of the book Humane Insight, looking at images of African-American suffering and death. So uh, with that, uh, as you say, 1955 and, and um, sort of understanding this work of seeing, I suppose, uh, in person versus how we uh, projected across the country, across the airwaves and across our media is is a difficult, um, to me, I think it's one of the things that, that sticks in, in my thinking when I was reading through the introduction in particular, trying to understand the, the, the way in which distance is a is a real problem. Even the the photo that appears to give you, as we said, you know, a context is still a distance. You know, there's still a distance between you and the picture, even if it's a picture of you. You know, even if it's a thing that you can understand as something you might even remember, it it distances you from the event. It's all it's obviously a past event, so there's distance there as well. If there's a camera, there's distance between you and the camera. So there all these things are layers of distancing, and then as you project them across a national landscape or you project them across a con, uh, a, um, a constituency that you want to influence, right? Uh, where all these things just sort of hamper any anything like, well, I think you use the word truth multiple times here, trying to understand how do we get to truth. 
How is it that you can uh, make use of Emmett Till's body as an image that is distant from us? And how have we lost that sense, even that, that viewing like that is meaningful? I think that if I can attempt to consolidate what you just said and, and to tease out what the difference is, a lot of the, the looking, the practices of wit- witnessing of black suffering and death that I document, that I find most useful, most radical, um, is attended fundamentally by mourning, um, by a sense of loss, by a sense of care. And without that, and I think this is what happens when you have the images of, of uh, Castile, Sterling, uh, Mike Brown, just circulated on, on and on, we can say that we're witnessing you know, these deaths. We're bearing witness to horror. But for something to happen, for things to change, we need to be moved, right? We need to be made uncomfortable. Um, we need, I think, to be brought to tears or brought to rage, right? Um, I think the problem is now is that we are increasingly, and I, I in, in the piece that I wrote for Avidly, I dated this to back to uh, the Rodney King uh, episode and, and that video, that we can become so inured to seeing these images that we think that we're doing the work just by seeing what happened. And I think that's what we really need to be careful of. If we're just looking, um, if we're, then we're just participating in voyeurism, right? We're not really doing anything. And for me, I'm also really invested in the ways in which the individual, the person who is looking, is under, can understand themselves as being as being looked at by that image. What does it mean? What does it mean to be looking into the eyes of the man who is about to be lynched? Right? How does that affect you? What is what business have you? Um, in looking at these images, you know, how are you going to compensate for, for this act, even this, and this act being, even being alive, how are you going to um, account for that? Right. And how are you going to do something with, um, with what you've just seen? It's a massively difficult thing to address and to address personally, as well as to try to understand the technologies that are involved, you know, to try to understand how we even talk about these things, images and uh, feelings and uh, the power of of the medium itself to not only draw us in, but to draw us in falsely, to draw us into a place where we feel in false ways. Uh, you know, that's the problem of cinema generally to me is that you create feeling for nothing in some sense. Um, so how how does a reality you know, that should uh, evoke, as you say, uh, empathy or rage uh, um, or tears and sadness and even uh, self-incrimination. How how can I witness that and not do something? Um, Flies in the face of how we witness visual images in a dead zone in some sense uh, every day. Yeah, I think 
I'm not someone who wants to say, you know, uh, Grand Theft Auto needs to be outlawed or, or anything like that. that. I'll say it. Images are the, you, you'll say it. <laughs> yes. um, I think that, well, what I, what I really try to press on in, in the book and is that it's not the images. We can't blame the images for our bad behavior for, or for our good behavior. It's us. We're the ones who are looking. And I, my desire is that we remember that, that we're not just onlookers. We're not just bystanders. That by looking at something, by consuming images, and I really think that in some ways Spike Lee's, you know, it's a weird film, but Bamboozled as an allegory works really well because it's a film that says, you know, if you look at images and you consume joyfully images, caricatures, racist stereotypes, somebody's going to die, right? That, that there actually is a clear connection. Um, so what I want is some sense of accountability, right? What I, what I think is to remember that we're not just these eyes staring at a screen. And a lot of uh, particularly 1960s, Film criticism embraced that. We're just passive spectators. But we're really never passive spectators. Um, because even if we're, we think we're being passive, we're also making a decision of not to intervene, of not to think about our bodies and the ways that we inhabit space. Well, also, there's the idea that if you passively receive something, it, it does something inside you. Your next action will be um, a, a part of that, uh, all that visual reception that has come before. You you sort of make your decisions based on, I suppose, I, I, I wouldn't speak for knowing anything about actual cognition, but uh, the idea that your past experiences, your thoughts, your, your life comes to the fore every moment you do anything. So uh, we have to take responsibility for what we do accept into our our visual space, I suppose. Um, and part of the problem is that you get caught in this space where um, I I find the eye, I find the visual, uh, the worst part of humanity um, in the sense that it is the most rapacious and most ruthless and yet least responsible organ, I think, that we have. And, and we talk about the ability to to be in a thing, to experience life is, is, is no longer to touch anything, to smell anything, to, you know, it's to walk around and, and catch a Pokemon <laughs> at this point, right? How do we make use of this idea that, that the visual I'm seeing you right now through my Skype, you're, you're very close to being real to me, mm -hmm. you know, you're, but you're still just an image. You're almost a photograph, right? Well, here, yeah. Well, here's the weird thing that I argue in my book is that, and, it, and it's kind of risk, but I, I think it, it works. It's that humanity, the concept of humanity itself is in many ways a fiction. It's nothing we can prove. It's not empirical. I just have to trust, right, that you're there and that you're not some CGI-generated, you know, um, bot. But I think what you're talking about um, when you're talking about touching things, smelling things, is returning to our sense of embodiment um, but, it, but I, I think the problem that we're both identifying is the way that we've culturally become detached from our own bodies, um, to the point that seeing becomes irresponsible, that we don't understand that 
as an act that we are performing. And that we're consuming things that come before us or into us and that we're not able to tune it out, right? Um, and what I, what I kind of want to offer as not the solution, but the antidote is, is a sense of embodiment and being responsible for, for the things that come into us, the things that we encounter, whether they're virtual Pokemon or whether it's a real, you know, a, a real body. And to really be able to distinguish between those two. I think that's what's crucial. It's time for another break. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Fables of Phobos, one of Charles Mingus's most explicitly political works, written as a direct protest to Arkansas Governor Orville Phobos, who in 1957 refused President Eisenhower's order to integrate Little Rock Central High School. More with Courtney Baker and lynchings on loot when Interchange returns on WFHB. Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. In our last segment tonight, we dive deeper into the ways we can better respond to the now common circulation of horrific images of black suffering and death by acknowledging our own human embodiment, by allowing and recognizing our shared vulnerability as human bodies, and eliminating the distance to the suffering depicted that mediated and passive viewing enables. I do want to go into gender, uh, too, before we get away from this, because I thought that was fascinating. I think it's an interesting um, uh, distinction you or you try to talk about the passive and the the active in terms of looking or viewing as well. But you talk about uh, slave narratives uh, in in the book. And uh, it struck me as interesting that as you were you were talking about the the ability to to use the body in pain as the thing that could give us some way to understand humanity, um, to recognize that bodies feel pain and the other feels pain maybe. But the, the very distinct difference between the, the masculine uh, slave who overcomes as a man by beating up and the difference in, in how the, 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 the feminine slave narrative is portrayed. Well, I don't, just want to return to the idea of... Um, Seeing seeing pain and seeing death, that that actually does something. Um, sure. Yeah. Because if if we keep with this notion that humanity can't be proved, I I want to I, I want to say that we have a history of thinking that seeing is going to create the change. That if we're seeing someone in pain, 
um, then we're actually experiencing it or we're understanding them better. Or even if they're, t- if they're speaking a story of their, of their pain, we're understanding it better. And I, I, I think, um, Elaine Scary says this so beautifully, um, that pain resists language. Um, so if it's possible for the torturer to ignore the pain that the tortured body is experiencing, then it's, then it, then it means it's possible for all of us. Um, so, and, and, but to come back to your question about gender, because I think, um, the way that gender and particularly the feminizing, not, which is not to say all women, but the feminizing of what can get represented as a passive position of just crying or just mourning, um, has in my studies, particularly with the Emmett Till case and with the civil rights movement, was an incredibly powerful action. I mean, there are ways in which we can call civil disobedience a passive or feminine act. But, but, and what, you know, Mamie Till, Emmett Till's mother, was really at the center and was at the start of that book project for me. And one of the many things that I think that she accomplished that was really extraordinary was that she rendered her act of mourning and rendered mourning in general into a very, very powerful and effective political action. Something that we think of as being weak, as giving into feeling, as giving into, um, as demonstrating vulnerability. Um, but it, it's been said before that our vulnerability is our strength. Right. And being and, and it's our vulnerability in seeing an image of a lynching or or of watching a video of a shooting that will that will allow us to actually feel will actually will actually move us, move us to action or even just require us to think differently. You you point up your own difficulty in understanding these things, and I think your book ten, sort of turns into a kind of lament for where we are now, and your most recent articles also seem to be um, not ne- not even laments, but to say, oh man, things have gone wrong with how with how we make use of these or how we turn these into uh, how we can turn these into political statements or even positions of human uh, care if they're used in this way, you know, just used as images that sh- that that shift across our screens, just like we're stuck in a room with our hands tied down and our eyeballs open. That's how it feels all the time, and not being able to feel the reality of those moments. Um, but they're also complicated by the fact that they are, they're accompanied by, as you say, the narrative that creates a, um, the story of the image. And I, I guess I don't have a good way to, to believe in the ability of images to do the work that they used to be able to do, you know, I, I, th- and I think, I think you've gotten to that place too. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I didn't, when I started the project, think I would end up there. I knew there was something important and I, I knew, and, and part of it was, was watching September 11th happen. I'm from New Jersey, worked in New York and I was kind of glued to the screen and it was horrible um, seeing people jumping and falling but I also had the sense that I needed to to watch this, that somehow I would be able to make sense of this and under, 
understanding. But the understanding that that others in power came to was not the understanding that I came to, um, which was one about humanity. I don't want us to put our hope in in the image. I I think that we've gotten into the habit of or the practice of looking to images to do the work, um, and it's just not there. And if we if we keep paying attention to the image, we end up not paying attention to the people who are depicted in it and those who are immediately affected. And that's actually where where my book ends up, looking at Katrina. Um, if we're just looking at these images, these these hundreds of images of, of suffering, and we're not actually taking care of the living, because that is that was something that was really disturbing um, in the wake of uh, Hurricane Katrina, where some were saying, well... It's horrible, but we, we, the neighboring county is saying we'd rather have a morgue here than have the survivors here because at least we can't get robbed by the living. Now, that's, that's, that's a, a comment that participates in the narrative that the images are circulating and refuses to acknowledge, that refuses to connect the dead to the still living and basically makes victims of those survived. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. With me on today's program is Courtney Baker, author of the article The East Snuff of Alton Sterling in Philando Castile, and of the book Humane Insight, looking at images of African American suffering and death. I think that the the place that I frequently want to go, and, and I think you touch on this, or at least I think this is the the crux of humane insight in some sense, is that the look that you make, you are the looker, um, that you are responsible for that insight. You are responsible for instigating a thinking space in yourself that part of the what we're confronting now and what we've we've been sort of lamenting here is the the inability to have time, the inability to address uh, the image and be looked at by the image as you as you state again, there's there's a um, there's a, a thing that's lost if you don't if you don't allow yourself to be interrogated by the image itself, right? Instead of just sucking it in and moving on and not having any thought to it or not not asserting a self, I think is the issue, right? Where images go in and go out of this brain and myself doesn't pay attention to them, right? And so, it, it, but, it, but it also affects that self. Right. But I didn't pay attention, you know, the I didn't pay attention <laughs> to it. Right. I think we need to, I think that's exactly right. What I, what we need to manufacture this thing, humane insight, to pay attention, especially since we are not only now just consumers of images, but we also circulate these images, right? I mean, how many times have, have the images of Sterling Castile been retweeted or posted on Facebook or Instagram or, or whatever? We are actually participating and active participants in, in that economy. So we can't even rely on that fantasy of being passive onlookers anymore. Um, right. So we really need to be accountable. 
Yeah, and and I would I guess try to address you know not only that uh, but you're as you're saying we participate in the structural violence and racism that that those things encourage right so I I forward on that particular violent image I am promoting the terror of the state in some sense right uh, not even in some sense that is exactly what I'm doing I am encouraging the fear that comes out of that to be honest that's a big part of I think a lot of people's situation now is that. Good heavens, I don't know if I can step into a situation where I'm pretty sure I'm in real danger. You know, it used to be a a point where you thought, well, um, you know, you can – you make a difference by being involved and it it becomes more and more difficult to to not be afraid of involvement even. Right. Right. And so I I think the the next question then is if we're not going to think that – circulating an image is an act is an action, right? Um, we call hashtag activism, right? I, oh, I just circulated. I just reposted that. That was my work for the day. Then what, then, then what else can we do? That's hard work. That's really hard work. But I think that's what, what's before us. Yeah. Um, it, w- one thing that just um, that I guess I'm Again, I think it's central to the understanding of this culture in particular, but maybe other white white dominated cultures, white supremacist cultures in some sense right there, that if you just look to uh, our science, again, in your introduction, you mentioned Darwin and, and part of the issue of, of the, the science of evolution, the science of, of the, the fittest and these things, right? So, you know, if you look at the science of the um, 19th century in particular, you've got Louis Agassiz who goes down to Brazil and takes pictures of um, not only you know, sort of indigenous peoples, but slave uh, slave peoples and then the, the indigenous uh, slave uh, mix of peoples and, and tries to uh, I don't know what I don't know what those photos are for for Agassiz, but um, you know they they almost become you can see them becoming as you said postcards to pass around to your white friends in the drawing room at Harvard, and um, the the difficulty there is that I think a part of 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 this is imagining the white hierarchy that creates these images of inferiority in some sense mm-hmm. and has to make a narrative of that to say this is why this is inferior versus, you know, this is just another body with particular strengths or weaknesses. Right. It's, again, returning to that distance that you're referring to. And those Agassiz images, he took some in South Carolina, and those are the the ones that are most famous. And if you actually see them, Harvard, they're kept at Harvard in their rare rare book room. Um, And for a while, I think they've lifted this ban, but for a while, the only images that they would allow to be reproduced in books and circulated were waist up, were waist up images, um, without shirts, um, of Renty, a slave, and his daughter. And there are actually full, full body portraits. But what's really strange about those images um, and I think usefully jarring for us to think about how these images get circulated and who's consuming them um, and the kind of lie of the scientific distance is that they're daguerreotypes. So they're in these beautiful red velvet lined um, gold cases. They're these really precious objects and then you open them up and they're supposed to be scientific, but you also know that they're, they're, they're something, there's something quite explicitly pornographic about them, right? Science can really function as 
uh, a veneer, a way of keeping us away from um, the humanity, if we want to call it that, with you know, in in, in scare quotes, as I'm recommending, or or even what I think is really most significant is our own desires. You know, being able to consume these images, and this is where the word pornography is really useful. That there might be a pornographic desire, right? A desire to see death or a desire to see a na- the naked black body, right? That that's being covered over and justified. Um, and I think of James Baldwin's short story, Going to Meet the Man. And it's really an extraordinary piece for so many reasons. Um, in, in part because he inhabits the mind of a white Southern racist sheriff who recollects going to his first lynching. And there's this intensely homoerotic moment um, of castration. And he connects it to his own sense of sexuality. And so all of these emotions, um, hatred, um, lust, are all interconnected. And I think in many ways that that's the epitome of the American problem of race, that that we have such a confusion of sensations around hate and love and desire and abjection. And that it's really, I keep saying it's difficult work and it is difficult work and it's, it's deep work, but it's essential work for us to disentangle those. And it's maybe even the hardest work is to acknowledge that that's where we are. That's it for tonight's Interchange. Our guest was Courtney Baker, author of Humane Insight, looking at African-American suffering and death. She joined me via Skype. We bring the show to a close with a more hopeful tune recorded by Oscar Peterson and Milt Jackson, John Brown's Body, a song about the abolitionist martyr whose failed raid on a federal armory was an attempt to supply slaves with weapons and incite a revolt against their white Southern masters. This song's melody became more widely associated with the broader Solidarity March, the battle hymn of the Republic. Next time on Interchange, Indiana University Emeritus Professor Susan Gubar joins us to discuss her new book, Reading and Writing Cancer, How Words Heal. Elaborating upon her Living with Cancer column in the New York Times, Gubar describes how the activities of reading and writing can right some of cancer's wrongs. To stimulate the writing and healing process, she proposes specific exercises, prompts, and models. In discussions of the diary of Fanny Burney, the letters of Alice James, the stories of Alice Monroe, numerous memoirs, novels, paintings, photographs, and blogs, she shows how readers can learn from art that deepens our comprehension of what it means to live or die with the disease. Reading and Writing Cancer, next time on Interchange, Tuesdays at 6 p.m., on WFHB. I'm Doug Storm. Thanks for listening. I produce Interchange. Assistant producer is Rob Schoon. Our board engineer is Jonathan Richardson. 
Executive producer is Joe Crawford. Stay tuned for The Jazz Menagerie, coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB. WFHB.